Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes and co-host Matt Robeson on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. So for all of us who are stuck at home dealing with the coronavirus, you can binge listen to all the previous shows in our archives at nhtalkradio.com. It's been an interesting time. Coronavirus is the number one thing on everyone's mind. Maybe it's the only thing we're thinking about. At the same time, we live in a democracy and politics are ever present. We choose our leaders. Our leaders do things and we have to figure out whether we're going to keep them or let them go and find new people. And uh, we've got presidential elections coming up we hope, in November. Uh, All things uh, being equal, that should happen. So it's important to understand what's happening in politics, and we need to understand what to do about coronavirus, and we need to understand how coronavirus and politics these days are going to match up and link. So on our show, we talk about some of the deeper dives into politics that Matt Robeson takes on a moreperfectunionforum.com, his blog, and as a writer for the alternet.org on the internet. We've got a really terrific guest today uh, to help us wade through all of the intricacies of our politics. Dr. Rachel Bittekoffer is a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. Her research has been featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, Politico, the New Republic, USA Today, and NPR. Uh, Famously, she nailed the 2018 midterms uh, months before they happened, and her political analysis and modeling uh, came within one seat of being perfect. And that's pretty good in today's political spectrum. Uh, And in a way, she's kind of a political nerd celebrity. Uh, For a professor, (laughs) becoming a a celebrity is is always interesting. So, Rachel, welcome to Off the Record. Well, thank you so much for having me today. Um, so how are you doing at home? I mean, you're a professor, you're used to professing. And I, I understand, like all of us, you're, you're at home. You, I, if I'm not mistaken, you have kids. So how's it working out? Professor, homeschool teacher, back to grade school? What's going on? You're at the, at the Bittercoffer residence. Yeah, you know, it's, I mean, in one degree, I'm way used to working from home. I've, you know, always enjoyed that element of being a professor is the flexibility to not be nine to five at office, you know, so I had a pretty nice home set up for working at home already in place. And I was used to the discipline that it requires to work from home, but I also loved getting rid of my child to school, you know, so that I'd have the peace and quiet to do it in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, generally, though, like mine has been taught, you know, I I, number one, I'm big on teaching children. Like I'm like on that free range side of the spectrum for parenting, like teach your children how to take care of themselves and you know, self-reliance and pour their own cereal. And if you don't do those things, then they'll be giant men babies when they grow up. So, Uh you know, I'm big on, on that. So that my children aren't particularly like, you know, um, you know, intensive labor intensive, but you know, when the, when the school is no longer in charge of educating them, 
that's that's a terrible responsibility to place on people like uh, that have jobs, you know. <laughs> so I am doing, I think, what what a lot of people ought to do, which is accept their limitations, because I am definitely not an elementary school teacher. My child is young, so he's age six. If he was age is in fifth grade or sixth grade, it would be a different story. But we're talking about small child education here, <laughs> and he's rather, you know, really like we're, we're our whole family is riddled ADHD. It's part of our genius, right? Um, which is fascinating, and it's a great element for older people, but in small children, it makes education even more difficult. So I'm at a loss as to how you teach young ADHD riddled children, you know, math and reading. I, I'm, I'm just trying my best and uh, accepting the fact that I'm not going to be good at it and trying not to be too harsh on myself. You know, I think parents all over are beginning to really appreciate the loco in parentis role of elementary school teachers. And maybe one of the hidden benefits out of all this uh, for an, a more informed uh, citizenry having having uh, experienced themselves the, the challenge of uh, teaching kids will be an appreciation and elevation of the status of teachers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I always had a deep appreciation. Like I, one of the, I was one of those people, like you never go back through my Facebook timeline and find a first day of school photo because on the first day of school, I'm so anxious to get rid of my child. <laughs> I don't take time to take photos, right? I'm like, here you go. Take this thing. Jesus, you know, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I. Yeah, and the teacher can literally have whatever they want. Like they could send me a school supply list. They could ask for espresso machines and, you know, a, a pedicure or whatever. Like I would buy it for them as long as they want to do the job of educating my child for me and take them for eight hours a day. Like they literally, they're gods to me, you know? Well, <laughs> so, that's a, yeah, that's hopefully a great more attitude. of Americans. Yeah. yeah, hopefully more Americans will feel that way now, you know. <laughs> That's great. Let's let's dive into politics. So I want to talk about negative partisanship. Uh, it's something that Matt and I have talked about before. What is it and why is it so important to understanding what's going on in American politics these days? So negative partisanship is a concept that comes out of, of polarization um, research in political science. Um, not really sure who, where it originates, because I, um, I know Alan Abramowitz, who's like my intellectual mentor, he, I had asked him, you know, last time I saw him in person, by the way, Alan, did you invent negative partisanship? And he, he says, no, I, I didn't. I don't know where it came from. But he, he's where I got turned on to the concept. But the concept refers to this idea that you have, you know, you have your party party identification and, um, you know, some new research from Liliana Mason, you know, is talking about how Americans have come to adopt our party identification as a social identification. We didn't used to feel that way about being a Republican or a Democrat, but we, we, we think about it now in the way that we used to think about things like being a member of a church. So that's what it means to say it's a social identity, identity, right? And, and in that, um, that element of party identification, you have your positive associations with your party, the things that, you know, the ideology, the platform positions, the politicians, the emotions that you feel that are positive. But you also have 
the opposition party and those negative emotions towards them that, you know, motivate your behavior, the apathy, the distrust, sometimes the anger, and often, unfortunately now, even hate, right? Um, hate and fear. So negative partisanship um, is appearing in a lot of different research veins right now, but I took it and applied it to electoral behavior, which is voting behavior in the mass public. And I argued, you know, that's the main driver, like the old way of looking at things, kind of like in your introduction, which was this, what I would call conventional view of politics. We have these elected leaders, you know, like Trump, and he's got this crisis that he didn't ask for. And any po po politician's going to have to make decisions and is going to struggle with a very large crisis. And then the public's going to assess their performance and render a judgment. That, but that is, and, and, and I'm not trying to pick on you, but it's a naive view of politics. If it, it did exist, it doesn't exist in America anymore because the way that people look at this performance now is through these cognitive biases of this social identity, identity of partisanship, right? So like no matter how bad, bad of a job Trump does, and we know for sure he's already mismanaging major front end elements of this disaster response, Republicans are going to assess it through these partisan lenses, right? And so in the old days, like um, where we were looking at for this economic collapse and for the impending, um, likely uh, impending death rate that we're going to see from this virus, you know, we were looking at a map looking like the 1980 Reagan-Carter election where, you know, Carter just got stomped, right? Um, but we're not going to see that. Like, I'd be absolutely shocked if Trump gets shellacked, even if we head into the fall with a 10% unemployment rate and, you know, massive economic hangover from this event because of polarization and that negative partisanship element plays a major role in that because Republicans will look at Trump, number one, they'll be more forgiving about the things that he did. So they'll say, well, you know, these things happened, but it wasn't his fault. It's this, 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 and this that are external to him. And B, they're still looking at the alternative, which would be democratic control of the government and all of the things that that would entail. And those are negative assessments, right? So that's, that's how negative partisanship broadly speaking, um, applies to politics today. So could you take us through how you turned that understanding about negative partisanship and these newly ascendant forces in the way people view politics and how you turn that uh, into your modeling and into the conclusions that you reach about what's likely to happen in the future in elections? Sure. Yeah. And, and really, uh, to get to there, I'll have to start at the beginning of the story, which is a, is a double story. It's a story of a person who, um, you know, was was uh, motivated to go get a political science degree and then realizing, OK, if I really want to play at a serious level with it, I, I need a Ph.D. I didn't realize I could just become a journalist and then do it. But anyway, um, I need a Ph.D. in poli sci. And so I went to college and then graduate school and I enrolled in my grad program in 2009. And it was obviously that was when the economy had collapsed and Obama came in on this big wave election, followed by that um, 2006 wave in the House. And then, you know, as I starting my graduate studies, that 2010 midterm was upcoming and, you know, the economy was still very much in collapse. I mean, it was stabilized, but it was the, the 
the pain of the of the fallout of the economic collapse was still it be, you know getting implemented basically right and i remember just being really surprised that like the political environment became so favorable for republicans and of course the media like punditocracy you know story is oh you know you've got obamacare and it's this massive overreach and you know independents are rejecting it and you know that is one part of the explanation. Anytime you have a big major policy change, it leaves you open to attack, right? But Obamacare certainly wasn't um, the nationalization of healthcare. I mean, it wasn't Bernie Sanders, you know, Medicare for all policy. It's actually fairly modest as a policy proposal. And then when the election returns come in and Republicans picked up 60, you know, three seats in the House, I start looking at the data And I'm like, oh, no, it's because like a big chunk of this Obama coalition electorate disappeared. You know, it it didn't they didn't show up. They left this dude at the altar, you know, because they are basically complacent about voting and Republicans were super, super fired up. And that's really where. Like I get, I start realizing that like, okay, there's this negative component to enthusiasm that's really important. And that's what's driving this midterm effect more than independence just moving back and forth, which is the traditional way people think about that midterm effect. It's about these surge and decline of the party's coalitions, right? Uh, but I didn't really know I would end up, you know, seven, eight years later, formalizing that into a political theory. It's just over the years, I, I saw election, election, after election play out, I heard the political, you know, um, you know, election analysis world just com- like constantly miss that part of the story. And and then when uh, Trump won, and I had I had not predicted Trump winning. I wasn't into forecasting. I was starting my career. I, it was my first year teaching. I had said to my students, though, you know, you know, no, she should win. She's going to win. Look at all these forecasts. She's going to win. <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, but if. It will be because Bernie Sanders voters are disaffected and they don't show up or they protest ballot in big numbers. And, you know, the Obama coalition doesn't show up like they did in these midterms. And sure enough, you know, and when, when it happened and then, you know, again, the collective diagnosis of the media is, oh, it's these white working class voters. And I'm like, yeah, but white working class voters are in this long term realignment and they have been moving away from Democrats every four years for a long time. So that's obviously not the story. And in Wisconsin, I mean, I could pick any of the swing states except for two or three of them in Wisconsin. Um, usually, or in like 2012, about one and a half percent of people in Wisconsin showed up and cast what we call a protest ballot in 2012, right? In 2016, it was six, above six percent of the electorate that did that. Six percent. And that's a state that went between Trump and Clinton by about 0.7 of a point. So we're talking about less than one point between Clinton and Trump. And that's the story in almost every one of the swing states. He didn't break 50 percent in almost any of them. Rachel, can I ask you to hold? Can can we hold for one minute? Uh, This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson. We're talking with Dr. Rachel Bittekoffer about uh, the new view of politics that has been predicting really well what's going on. Uh, We're gonna have to take a short break. Uh, When we come back, we'll continue our discussion about what's really going on in American politics today. Don't go away.
We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXLA uh, AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We are talking with Dr. Rachel Bittercoffer, um, who is a really smart pundit these days. She's a professor and a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center. Uh, she has been featured in all kinds of publications, and she correctly predicted what was going on in 2018 uh, with a kind of new twist on how we should see politics. And Rachel, I can only tell you that as a former congressman who came in on a wave in 2006 and went out on a wave in 2010 <laughs> uh, when I tried to run for the U.S. Senate at just the wrong time, and yeah. being someone, and as somebody who's frankly a little bit one of those old-fashioned naive guys about politics and uh, came in when traditional politics was still the explanation for things and went out on the front edge of the new politics, what you're telling us about is especially fascinating. So we stopped when you were explaining what had happened uh, in Wisconsin between Hillary and Trump. Um, and you were you were on your way to wrapping up and kind of explaining yeah. that part of things. Yeah, yeah. I was I was talking about, you know, this untold tale of the role of progressive defection to, you know, I mean, there was defection on both sides, of course. There were other, um, you know, a lot of this protest balloting, by the way, comes from independents. Um, you know, it wasn't coming from, um, you know, Democrats and Republicans because there was there was defection to Gary Johnson's ticket. Now, keep in mind, there are a lot of, of independents who voted for Johnson, the Johnson ticket over the issue of pot legalization, like their single issue, uh, young people who vote just on that issue. Um, and a lot of independents are extremely, extremely liberal. Like they're so liberal, they don't want to be members of the Democratic Party. So, so yeah, I'm just shocked. And then I thought, okay, well, you know, someone's going to notice that other than me. I won't be the only one this time, surely, right? <laughs> like book after book comes out and it's the same story. And it's not that, that, that the, the movement of white working class voters is in a correct diagnosis. It is, although it shocked me that so many people left out the part that it's it's a natural progression that can't be changed with going to Wisconsin more or running different ads there or um, putting Biden on the ticket instead or whatever, right? These working class voters are moving away. These traditional democratic strongholds that were powered by union strength are disappearing and the party's center of gravity is transitioning to the suburbs, right? And, um, you know, it's it's not something that a candidate can change. Now, maybe some long-term branding, uh, significant branding within the party could change that, but nothing within a one campaign probably, right? Um, so, uh, you know, and then, you know, Eve's book comes out and it's titled What Happened? And I'm like, oh, finally, someone's going to explain what happened. Read the whole thing, didn't, <laughs> didn't explain what happened. So I titled my own chapter in my own book, What Really Happened? And I explained to the to the world, you know, the role that 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 massive amount of I mean, it's way more than the 2000 election in which people think about that as being a spoiler election in Florida in 2000. Nader doesn't even pull two percent. It's like two percent of the vote in Florida. In Florida, um, it's well above two percent protest balloting in 
2016, and no one talks about it. So uh, I mostly was motivated to get this stuff out because I felt like in the age of polarization, the modernization of elections, um, these changes in mass voting behavior, unless we understood how they were impacting voter behavior, we were going to be constantly surprised by things. And unable um, to capitalize on them properly. And since no one else was doing it, I decided I was going to find a way to get to get that out. And, and lucky for me, social media, you know, pre presented a pathway to get it out. Yeah. So I have a question, which is, how did we get here? Was it the media? Was it demographic and cultural changes around race and gender? Was it economics and money? Was it failures of one party or the other? I mean, what what what's the underlying? What was the, why this underlying uh, an important trend? So everything that I write in which I can and I have enough space to do it, I actually always illustrate the cause, the causes, because it's all of those things and much more, right? I mean, it's it's not it's, how we got here is an extremely complex system of things that put that pulled together to, to create this this environment that we're in. But, you know, and, and, and honestly, it, it has its real roots at the nation's founding, right, because race plays such a big role in it. But I start the story mostly in that 1950s, 1960s, when finally through federal, you know, intervention, I, you know, both through the courts and through heavy hitting legislation, the federal government intercedes in the, in the system of segregation in the South, ends it, right? And that is literally the federal government invading the Southern system and, you know, through supervision and, and heavy hand, like implement ending this segregated system. And then at the same time, you have, um, you know, two or three other major cultural things happening. Women's liberation, which is not effing around anymore at that moment, right? I mean, that's when that went second wave feminism really, really gained steam. And women do the same thing that other civil rights movements are doing at that point. They turn to the courts and they turn to federal legislation. And you see Title IX go through and you see Roe v. Wade go through. Um, you know, my students are always shocked to find out that women couldn't access contraception legally in many parts of the country until the 60s, right? And then it took the Supreme Court stepping in to cause that to happen. And, you know, with the court chipping away at that, you know, that that um, marriage of church and state, I mean, Christianity was very prominent in American public life. And then you start to see the court step, you know, start to chip into that. The court starts implementing what we think of as the modern criminal justice, you know, prisoner right paradigm. And you have the liberalization of the immigration system. So for the first time in American history, people from non-European countries are coming into the country. And, you know, these things are all brewing in this giant pot at the same time. And it's all about power dominance up until that moment. Who dominated power? White men. They had 100% grip on it. And all of a sudden, in all of these different directions, women, minorities, you know, and ethnically, that power is, is challenged, right? And people freak out when their power is challenged. I mean, it's, it's uh, the great lie that liberals like to tell themselves is that power can be redistributed without affecting other people's power. Like, oh, me having power doesn't affect your power. Bullshit. When one group has all the power, 
and then another group says, I want some of that power. <laughs> and it's like, you know, obviously the group that had all the power and all the control is is not going to have that control and power is going to fight back. I'm not saying it's it's a good thing. I'm just saying it's a it's a natural human reaction. So um and then you throw into that this technological, like um, you know, we had this uh human development period. If you think about human technology on a timeline, it grows so modestly for century after century after century, and then electricity is, is developed, and all of a sudden it's exponential, right? And the exponential growth of somebody who's now 80 in terms of what is you know technologically possible in their lifetime, it's, is, it just opens up this whole new world of communication. You got cable, you got internet. The internet really changes things. I mean, it's, it's both democratizing, but also... Uh, polarizing because, you know, now you have misinformation, disinformation, you have people who learn to weaponize those things, um, and other people who learn in what I, you know, one of my, my second book project, I talk about what I call the fear capitalists, people who realize they can make a lot of money by driving people nuts, basically, right? I mean, uh, people, like if I was me, but I was selling conspiracy theories like Glenn Beck, like outlandish stuff, I would have uh, 2 million followers, not 89,000, right? I'm selling wonky database analytics. Nobody, nobody buys that. You, people, well, we do. You want to make money, right? Yeah. But, but if you want to make money, sell crazy, right? On the left, on the right, it's crazy sells big time. Big, now you're giving, crazy. Now you, you, you know, you're, you're giving Robeson and me crazy ideas here because uh, we're just the kind of, <laughs> we're just the kind of people who might take advantage of all this insight. <laughs> well, then so you might end up in that. my book. <laughs> right. No, we'll, we're, we, we will definitely uh, have to pick that up and we commend it to all our listeners. Um, so, now that we have a, a pretty good firm base of how we got here, what are the forces that have sort of all conspired mixed in this pot to land us in this political moment? Let's look a little bit forward. Just to read back, it sounds like part of what you were saying is that you've developed this insight that, yes, there's a role in elections for swing voters, sort of a, a traditional view of how different groups who might plausibly vote for one side or the other, how they might uh, 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 express their views in a given election. But it sounds like you're saying that the far more dominant factor is who shows up and side along with that, who might be casting a protest vote as part of uh, either party's coalition. So looking forward at 2020, which I think we're all sort of trying to do with one eye on coronavirus and the other eye on November, what do you think the biggest strategic threat is from the Democratic perspective? Is it the potential loss of swing voters, or is it the failure to capture the, for lack of a better term, Sanders coalition and a continued expression of protest voting? So that was 100% conditioned on who the nominee ended up being. And since that nominee is now Joe Biden, and we know that's locked in, the answer to that is defection from the left. And the reason is, too, is that what we saw in 2016 was organic defection. The atmosphere, you know, there was no negative partisanship driving Democratic voter behavior or progressive or left voter behavior because they'd been in power and had forgotten what it was like to be out of power. And as 
assumed, too, based on all the rosy forecasts and polls, that they would stay in power. So it was uh, an atmosphere of nitpickiness, right? Um, and, you know, you know, there to some extent, there's a, a massive safety valve now being just out of power and having that, that whole um, atmospheric difference. But that doesn't mean that they're immune to it, especially because, you know, they were 100% convinced for a period of time that Sanders was going to be the nominee. And the um, Republican Party is not dumb. Like, they're much, much better at electioneering than the Democratic Party. I like to um, compare the two campaign apparatuses of the party machines. Uh, The RNC is driving a Maserati. Um, and then the DNC is driving like a Fiat, right? And then you know, like the uh, RNC is driving a Maserati um, on a like um, oh gosh, I don't know, like one of the most sophisticated you know racetracks in the world, and the Fiat can't get out of the parking lot, right? And so like they're basically just you know they're just they're and then the RNC is really strategic, so. If you were think about this, okay, if you look at the data, if you read my book and you look at the data, you've got this problem with Trump and you've had this problem from day one. Trump is not a 50% guy, okay? He didn't break 50% to win the swing states the first time. And people don't like him more now than they did then. And this is, let's just pretend COVID-19, you know, pandemic economic collapse isn't happening. Let's just say, you know, that, that let's keep that as an aside. Regardless of that, like he is, he never broke 50% in almost any of those swing states. Ohio and um, Iowa are the two exceptions to that. Everywhere else, he won as a plurality vote winner. And he's not more popular. In fact, he's much less popular in most places now. So if you have to reelect him and you're Brad Parscale, and this is something, you know, that should have been obvious for 18 months now, how do you reelect this guy in a two-party race? Well, it's going to be difficult, right? I mean, you have to hope Bernie Sanders wins the nomination. And if that doesn't happen, then you have to try to accelerate or accentuate or, um, you know, help heighten as much third-party protest balloting as possible. So when you look at these headlines that you see randomly popping up where the Montana GOP is paying to get the Green Party candidate on the ballot in 2020, that is not random activity, okay? That's a strategic effort by the RNC. They're going to spend millions of dollars trying to, um, you know, advertise to micro-target these these Sanders people with stuff of anti-DNC, anti-Biden stuff to heighten up those negative emotions that people feel about the DNC because it's smart, it's smart strategic electioneering. I mean, that's, they have to try to fracture the not vote, not Trump vote in order to win because the thought of getting Trump above 50% in a state like Wisconsin, Michigan, I mean, I just, I just can't fathom it, especially if you've, if you've read my research. Rachel, hold on one second. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL. Bat Robeson is co-host, and we're speaking with Dr. Rachel Bidkoffer about what's really going on in politics and what is going to go on in 2020. It's Off the Record on WKXL AM and FM. We'll be right back after a short break. Don't go away to hear more of this fascinating conversation.
We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live at nhtalkradio.com, a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can reach us anywhere, day or night, over the interwebs, those newfangled tubes that carry so much information. We're talking with Dr. Rachel Bittercoffer, who is a brilliant analyst of what's going on in politics. Uh, she has a new book and new studies coming out. She nailed the 2018 midterms. Now, here on this show, she's nailing what's going to happen in 2020. I had to interrupt her as she was talking about what the very, very clever Republicans are going to do to try to win the 2020 election and why Democrats, who frankly just are always sucking the tailwind of Republicans <laughs> when it comes to messaging, are actually behind the eight ball when we shouldn't be. So, Dr. Bittercoffer, Rachel, uh, I, I had to interrupt you, but please keep going because we're going to learn, hopefully, how it is that Democrats can possibly snatch some victory from the jaws of the usual defeat. Yeah, and I really, um, you know, I hate to plug another pod on your pod, but I'm going to do it anyway because I feel like it would be helpful for everyone to hear some uh, confirmation of what I'm saying. So for a long time, I have been telling people, Democrats, like, like it's a mystifying thing that they would be in a situation running against a guy everyone hates. And they would hold an entire election cycle in which literally the the top down order to all of the competitive races are don't talk about Donald Trump. Okay? <laughs> because like that when that strategy was rolled out um, to the public, I happened to catch the moment I was watching TV and uh, Michael Steele, who was the old RNC chairman, who, by the way, led the RNC on that 63 seat House uh, Republican pickup, was on a panel with Michael Steele, and he um, he says, yeah, well, what, we're gonna, we have our strategy all laid out. We're going to focus on local issues, and we're going to just let our candidates, um, you know, talk about whatever's specific to their district, and, you know, we're not going to focus on Trump. And Michael Steele sitting next to him, and his eyeballs roll so big in his head that he almost falls out of his chair, and, you know, I actually do fall out of the chair because I'm not on live TV. I'm at home, so I have no one watching me, and I can fall on the floor and start laughing, so I do. But I'm also crying because I'm like, oh, my God, people, really, are you serious? <laughs> it's called a referendum, you know, and that's what Michael Steele says to the guy. He says, you know, when I was the RNC chair, I made the entire election about Nancy Pelosi and Barack Obama, and I picked up 63 seats in the House, right? And like still, you know, they didn't get it. And, it's, and, and so somebody might say, well, Rachel – they won 40 seats. And I say, yes. And ice cream sales spe uh, peaked up when polio rates spiked up. Things sometimes correlate that have no relationship to each other, right? I mean, like as good as, as 2018 was, it could have been better if the Democrats were capable of running um, strategy the way that the Republican Party is in terms of messaging, in terms of understanding 
you know, how a referendum, um, natural referendum can be harnessed to maximize it. And, you know, I I think that Democrats are starting, you know, I've been pretty um, getting a lot of exposure. And I think that there are other people, obviously, when I first started to get some exposure, I got a lot of outrage from people in, you know, various parts of the country who have been working on these issues. So I'm not certainly not the only person who's noticed this, you know. Um, So I think, you know, Democrats are starting to wake up to the fact that, you know, they have been getting kind of, um, you know, hoodwinked in terms of getting voters motivated to vote. But, you know, that analysis I put out in the New Republic, I mean, it makes it very, very clear that even with a giant wave at their back and even with huge turnout increases for Democrats, Republicans still outvoted them proportionally in every district that I analyzed of the 25 plus that I picked up for my House analysis for 2018. And that that just shouldn't happen in an atmosphere where you have somebody as, as motivating as Donald Trump out there, motivating, and it's definitely evidence, quantitative proof of inadequacy in the approach of electioneering by the Democratic campaign. I'd love to pick up on that point, actually, because I, I think, you know, you and I travel in the same Twitter circles, and I see a number of Democrats beginning to pull their hair out a little bit, um, taking us to kind of this current moment. And coronavirus and the Trump response, the the daily press conference that, you know, is filled with, um, to to use a $50 word for this, mendacity. Um, And it it seems like recently there's been a realization out of the White House that there's a real likelihood that this election is going to turn on, as you say, a referendum that may be largely around uh, Trump's performance in the coronavirus crisis. So far, polls indicate that voters majority feel that they approve of his handling of the coronavirus crisis. And he's been engaged in some fairly active revisionist history, uh, retconning of the last few months. And there seems to be some angst growing in democratic circles that Democrats are not responding with a coordinated and forceful message Uh, not allowing Trump to get away with that, and to really drive home the point that his leadership has been an abject failure um, that's that's having major consequences for Americans. So given everything that that you just laid out um, about some of the failures of Democratic messaging, what advice would you have for Democrats right now? Do you agree that they're being somewhat passive Uh, on this issue? And how would you advise them to sort of turn it around? Yeah, I mean, number one, I always agree that Democrats are being passive on messaging because they are right. I mean, they they uh, they, what they have needed to do for a long time is institute a strategic brain trust within the DNC. Um, You know, none of the people who are currently in charge of it should be in charge of that brain trust. And they should be at the very least, actually, at this point, Pelosi, not herself, a spokesman like Schiff, should be holding a daily briefing for a Democratic update of the pandemic where it highlights the shortcomings because the press would show up to it and cover it and live stream it. So they should be doing that, right? I mean, this was just too easy things that they should be doing that they're not doing. Um, so in that way, uh, these critiques are absolutely right. They're, you know, they're very fortunate that luckily 
We live in Citizens United world where super PACs can fill in those gaps. So you've seen, you know, the priorities USA ad that is uh, highlighting his um, the real record of his response. Uh, and here in this in this particular case, I will say that ultimately Trump will not be able to spin himself out. I mean, there we are not yet into the crisis. People think we're um, in this crisis, and he thinks he can end it in two weeks. We're actually at the very beginning of the of the climb up the hill of of our crisis in terms of the um, medic of the hospitalization and death problem, right? Um, so ultimately, Trump will only be able to suspend himself. Um, you know, it's a lot harder to spin yourself out of out of a cold, hard reality like that. And I do think that um, you know he is enjoying a small uh, rally around the flag effect, but it's a it's a much more than any other president would have received. And so it's actually much more modest. And I, I, I'm not as impressed by it as other people are. So, I mean, it should be in the 80s, right? I mean, it's the fact that it's only 60 tells you a lot. It, people are like, oh, God, it's 60 percent. It should be 80. A, a normal functional president would be at 80. Okay, so 60 is not a great rally around the flag effect. And this is going to be the peak of it, because from here, the evidence of his inequity is going to start to come in. And that's going to be really hard for him to get around. But you're absolutely right. I mean, same story with impeachment. And and here's what I mean when I talk about the naivety of not updating your thinking towards the new reality that we live in. And it's a reality in which Republican voters meant to and worked hard to send um, Roy Moore in Alabama to the Senate and only failed by like two points, less than two points in their effort to do so, even though they knew he was a serial child predator, right, because he had an R next to his name and he would vote, you know, on on policy and, and confirm judges the way that they wanted. They were willing to do that. And that is something that would not have been possible in American politics 20 years ago, maybe not even 15 years ago. Um, it's not something that a healthy political like uh, culture should be capable of doing. And the fact that it's happening should be telling Democrats something here is not the same as it was before. Right. So, you know, like this idea of talking about local issues. Right. Um, Republicans don't talk about local issues. They nationalize every race from the top to the bottom. So every, you know, um, state legislative race that they send out, they tie the state legislative people to Nancy Pelosi to Barack Obama, to the squad, right? Because voters don't care about state local politics and they may not show up to vote, but if they think that the local Democrat has something to do with the squad, then their probability of voting is much higher. So like, you know, they're just, yeah, the Democrats have like these adages you know, oh, well, I'm not a member of an organized party. I'm a Democrat or ooh, Democrats just don't turn out at the rates that Republicans that they have internalized and accepted. And what I argue is, number one, those are things. It's not like uh, Republicans come out of the womb caring about the Supreme Court. It's a product of top-down messaging coming from Republican campaigns that have made Republican voters care about the Supreme Court. It's not a genetic you know, predisposition that makes conservatives care about those things. The, the problems Democrats have are fixable, but first you have to uh, um, come up with a, a plan and infrastructure around fixing it and messaging. Yes, if they 
don't if they don't tell the public the truth, the public will never know. And I, I just feel like Democrats assume everyone watches the news, which is not the case at all. So, so Rachel, we have about two minutes left. If, if from what you say, if uh, if uh, there was a candidate, let's say in New Hampshire, who was running for governor or even the state senate, it sounds to me like what you're advocating is that. Um, given our the governor Sununu's close ties with the White House, that all a candidate in one of those state offices ought to be doing is talking about the Trump Sununu agenda and the Trump yeah. Sununu failures, and and yeah. there, there shouldn't be any talk about all the good things that that we want to do for anybody. You know, forget education, healthcare. And the economy just talk about the Trump Sununu agenda because that's what's so destructive. That's what's been a failure. And people, you need to be very afraid of any continuation of the Trump Sununu agenda. It's the wrong direction for New Hampshire. It's the wrong direction for America. As New Hampshire goes, America goes. So it's critical that you defeat the Trump Sununu agenda and elect Democrats because they're the only ones who can save the state and save the country. Yeah, well, I will tell you this. It's not an accident that on average, and this is one of my many things that are sitting on, like now that I'm free from my university teaching job, you know, I intend to, to get out to the world. It's not an accident that Republican governors overperform polling, you know, like um, – like Republican governors are unusually popular in, in their states. And the reason is no one ever nationalizes the Republicans the way the Democratic governors are, are nationalized, right? If you look at, um, you know, Georgia, the guy down there, Brian Kemp, if you look at Sununu down in New, up in New Hampshire, yeah, no one's ever tying these guys to the national brand. And the national brand for the Republican Party is poop, right? So why wouldn't you tie it to him? Yep. You should, well, he, should, he should be wearing it like an albatross. So that oh, doesn't mean that you I, never have your candidate talk about something <laughs> happy, but you're advertising. You know what I mean? You have to, I yeah. got it. So, yes. We yes, got we it. Agree. Well, yes, listen, we agree. Well, You got the doctor, the doc approval on that plan, buddy. Okay. <laughs> we are out of time. This is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLAM and FM, live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We've been talking with Dr. Rachel Pudikoffer, uh, a really smart person about how Democrats uh, can win elections and how Democrats have lost elections. Uh, Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, if, if you're That's willing, we'd love to have you back to, to dive even deeper. We'll do it. I'll do it. And, and do let me uh, let me come back on and do some more ranting. It'll be great. <laughs> That's terrific. Folks, don't go away. We'll be back to wrap up after this. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLAM and FM streamed live over the Internet at NHTalkRadio.com. What a show we had with Dr. Rachel Pittacoffer, who understands what's going on in politics. Matt, what do you have to say to wrap this up? It's going to take me a while to wrap my head around all the things we just heard, but tremendous insights and uh, a lot for us to unpack in our next show.
Terrific. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson, deeping the dive into the politics that really matter. We're going we're gonna to have some, some stuff to talk about. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening. <laughs>